I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Logic and practical information do not seem to apply here. Let me just close this conversation by saying you are one unique individual. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today I've got some stories about basically everything. But not really big everything. Trivial little everything. I've talked about this in the past. I think it was back in Season 2 I did my first episode on useless facts and trivial information or whatever I called it back then. All of my life I've had this fascination with these little nuggets of information. And for years and years it just stuck to the back of my head. Little compartments in my brain opened up and stored things away. Like I learned that you can tell a turtle's sex by the sound it makes. Male turtles grunt and female turtles hiss. Now don't ask me why I know that. I just know that. It's stuck in there. My brain, I guess, is like one of those desks with all the little pigeonholes in it and you put information here and information there and it just stays there. And it comes out when you need it. Playing a game of Trivial Pursuit or You Don't Know Jack on the Jackbox games, it's all stuck in there and it comes out when needed. Every once in a while, I feel the need to let it out and so that's what we're going to do today. I remember we talked about this in the past because I talked about the similarities between Lincoln and Kennedy. That's the kind of information that always fascinates me. And in case you missed that episode, there are a lot of parallels between Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846 and the presidency in 1860. Kennedy was elected to Congress in 1946 and the presidency in 1960. Both had vice presidents named Johnson. Both were assassinated by Southerners. I mean, there's a lot. I went through the whole list back in season two. And I'm not going to repeat the whole thing here. You can go back and listen to that episode or look it up. It's easy to find. But that's the kind of information that just fascinates me. And so today I wanted to share little snippets of that kind of information. There's really no rhyme or reason to what I've put together today, except that it's all basically useless information. I shouldn't say useless. Maybe I should just call them strange facts. Minutia. That's what we'll do. We'll call it strange facts and minutia. And I want to pass this on to you because you never know when you're going to need it. That bar bed that comes up, that round if you don't know Jack, that family gathering with Trivial Pursuit, this stuff may come in handy, and you'll thank me then. I'd like to say there's an easy way to organize this, but there isn't. I don't really have a theme, it's just stuff that's in my head, so here we go. Stream of consciousness minutia for you. First up, we've got Norma Talmadge. You may not know Norma. She was a silent movie star back in the 1920s. And what useless information could we possibly have about her? Well, it's this. Back in 1927, she was walking along a street in Hollywood, and she stumbled and left her footprints in some freshly laid concrete. Now, she had some quick-thinking press agent with her. They took pictures of her footprints in the wet concrete, and lo and behold, Norma Talmadge started the tradition of stars leaving their footprints and handprints in concrete outside Grauman's Chinese Theater. So if you ever go to Hollywood and you want to put your feet in the footprints of famous people, you can thank Norma for starting that tradition. If you're a longtime listener, you know my fascination with language and words. And this is one of those little bits of information that sticks in my head because it pertains to language and words. Back in ancient Rome, quarrymen would sometimes rub wax into their marble blocks before they sold them. You know, they'd cut a big chunk of marble out, have to sell it to a sculptor. But sometimes it would crack, so they'd take wax and rub it in the cracks to fill it out and make it look pretty. Great salesman. But as you might expect, once the sculptor got the block of granite or marble or whatever it was back to the studio, they didn't put it inside, they left it outside, and the rain would wash the wax off. 
and they discover, oh, my marble is cracked. As you might expect, they were not thrilled by this. They'd complain I bought a big block of marble and look at all the cracks in it. So the Roman Senate passed a law. The law said that all marble purchased must be sinicera, which meant without wax. Well, that phrase sinicera evolved to the word sincere. Sincere, of course, means without deception. So our word sincere comes from the fact that there were some shady quarrymen trying to pass off their chipped marble blocks as full marble blocks. This next one is one of those little coincidences of history that always fascinates me. The first major battle of the Civil War took place at Bull Run Creek. That battle happened to be near the home of a guy named Wilmer McLean. Now, Wilmer was a peaceful guy. He wasn't interested in the war. He just wanted to have his peaceful life and be left alone, like most people. So he saw this battle and saw what was going on, and he feared for his family's safety. So he pulled up stakes, took his wife and his kids, and they moved. He moved to a village called Appomattox Courthouse. Four years later, in Wilmer McLean's parlor, General Lee and General Grant met there to sign the surrender papers, officially ending the Civil War. The guy pulled up stakes at the first hint of battle, left to go live in a remote village, and they used his parlor to sign the peace treaty for the war he moved to avoid. I love that. That seems like perfect symmetry to me. Now, I love this next one. Back in the 1870s, religious zealots in the U.S. I know that's surprising that that would happen here in the U.S., right? Religious zealots. Religious zealots decided that soda parlors had become a meeting place for sinners and hedonists. Now, in case you don't know, the soda parlors back then, it wasn't just a tall glass of Coca-Cola, which didn't exist back then, but it was the carbonated water. And what they would do is they would take a scoop of ice cream, they'd put it in a cup, pour the soda water over it. It's what we often call a float these days. Well, certain segments of the population didn't want people enjoying a good time. Only sinners and hedonists would dare to frequent a place where you could get soda. So, as a result of this religious zealotry, they passed blue laws. Those blue laws banned the sale of soda on Sunday. We can't have sinners and hedonists drinking soda on Sunday. That's God's day. None of that bubbly refreshment. Sorry. Well, a guy who ran one of these soda parlors back in Evansville, Illinois, figured out a way to circumvent the law. He decided he would serve that scoop of ice cream, put it in a bowl, cover it with fruit and nuts and syrup. But by serving it in a bowl, he eliminated the need for a glass and the soda water. He called it a Sunday soda, but he spelled Sunday with an E at the end instead of a Y because he didn't want people to think he was making fun of the Lord's Day. And he created the first ice cream sundae. Honestly, I think this is an example of what I like to call malicious compliance. I'm not the first person to come up with that term. But what it means is complying with the letter of the law and doing something that you want to do anyway. The guy couldn't sell his ice cream sodas, but he certainly made a market for his ice cream and got around the craziness of the blue laws. Innovation wins out. It's a beautiful thing. You may have heard of Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa was a revolutionary in Mexico back in the early 1900s. He was conducting a guerrilla war against the Mexican government back in the early 1900s and signed a movie contract in 1914 to coincide with his guerrilla war. He signed over the screen rights to his battles. This is 1914, by the way. You'd expect something like this in 2014. Pancho Villa was ahead of his time. Saw an opportunity to make some money, and in 1914, for $25,000 and a share of gross profits, he signed over the rights to his guerrilla war. As part of the contract, he agreed to schedule his attacks for daylight hours. He also let the movie company know where the attack would be so that the cameraman could get great angles for all of the shots. 
At one point during the course of the contract, Pancho Villa was ready to attack a certain village and the camera crew was late, so he delayed the attack. He didn't want them to miss it. The man knew how to honor a contract. You gotta give him that. Now this next one involves one of my favorite planets, Pluto. I know they've downgraded Pluto. It's no longer a planet. It'll always be a planet in my heart, though. How can you take planethood away from Pluto? I know there's scientific measures they use, but it's a planet. Poor Pluto. But anyway, our knowledge of the existence of Pluto is as a result of an accident. And I love that. In the early 1900s, an astronomer named Percival Lowell noticed that the orbit of the planet Uranus, and I'm going to call it Uranus because I know the way your mind works. The orbit of Uranus had slight eccentricities in it. Didn't seem to make sense to him. He was doing calculations about where the planet should be as he watched it through his telescope, and it wasn't where it was supposed to be. He figured the only explanation was that there must be an undiscovered planet out there affecting the gravity of Uranus. He figured that's what had to be pulling Uranus off its anticipated route. So he predicted that if astronomers were to put their telescopes at a certain part of the sky at a certain time, they would be able to find a new planet. In 1930, astronomer Clyde Tombaugh conducted a diligent search for this planet. He trained his telescope where Lowell told him he should, and lo and behold, he found the mysterious ninth planet, just like Lowell had predicted. The funny thing about all of that is this. It turns out Lowell's calculations were actually wrong. His prediction was just a lucky coincidence. He screwed up the math, but got the answer right. Tombaugh's telescope happened to be pointing at the right spot at the right time, purely by luck. And it turns out the calculations were wrong because Pluto's size is too small to have made the difference that Lowell was picking up in his calculations. And as a result, Tombaugh theorized that there may be a 10th planet out there because that would explain the effect on Uranus's orbit. But I love the fact that Lowell got the right answer with all the wrong math. That's how I got through high school, too. As long as I didn't have to show my work, I could usually give you the right answer. I might not know how to get there, but I'd get there. This next one isn't really a mistake. It's more about changing how people perceive things. Back in the 1920s, scientists discovered they had a cure for pellagra, which is a nutritional deficiency disease that leads to minor things like skin eruptions and mental derangement. So nothing too important. They found that the cure was something called nicotinic acid, which is a substance found in milk. Well, the folks at the AMA, the American Medical Association, they were worried that if the name nicotinic acid got out, people might think that it was related to nicotine. And then people being how they are, they would assume there were some great health benefits to cigarettes. They didn't want to associate cigarettes with nicotinic acid because, well, people are dumb. So the AMA decided they needed a better name than nicotinic acid. I wish I knew the guy who came up with this, but what they did, they took the first two letters of each word, N-I, nicotinic, A-C, acid, and then added an I-N at the end. And what did they come up with? Niacin. Niacin is the cure for pellagra. It's technically nicotinic acid, but you'll never hear that, except for today. Here's another one of those little bits of history that just fascinates me. Back in the 1840s, two transplanted New Englanders, Frank Pettigrove and Amos Lovejoy, bought a huge tract of land in Oregon, and they planned to build a city there. They surveyed it, had the streets laid out, they had it all divided into blocks and lots. They were ready to go. And sure enough, the settlers followed. And sure enough, they began to build their houses and buy land from these guys. And slowly but surely, a town grew that grew bigger and turned into a city. And so Lovejoy and Pettigrove knew they needed to name their city. But of course, they disagreed as to what the name should be. 
Apparently, neither one of them was very creative because they were stuck on names from back home. Lovejoy was from Massachusetts, so wanted to name their city Boston. You'd think he'd go with New Boston, but no, he was stuck on Boston. Pettigrove, meanwhile, was from Maine, and he was stuck on Portland. Finally, after a lot of back and forth, they came to the only logical conclusion on naming their city. They decided to flip a coin. Tails, and the new town would be called Boston, Oregon. Heads, they'd call it Portland. Guess which way the coin came up. This is another tale from early exploration days. There was a Spanish explorer who was lost in the jungle in South America, couldn't find his way out, and rather than die a slow death of starvation and fever, he decided to end it quickly. He knew the roots of the cassava plant were poisonous, so if he ate some of the roots of the cassava plant, he would die a quick and relatively painless death. So he picked some of the cassava plant, boiled the roots in water, drank his concoction, and nothing happened. In fact, the concoction he boiled was actually kind of tasty. He was actually the first guy to discover that boiling destroys the poisonous properties of the cassava's milky sap. Turns out it was pretty nourishing and the guy survived. He found his way out of the jungle and told people about this concoction that he made. And it also turns out he created a new food that was given a South American Indian name, tapioca. I love this story from World War II. The U.S. military being the geniuses that they are, they decided to have some American psychiatrists analyze Adolf Hitler in absentia, meaning he wasn't there. They didn't actually examine him. They just analyzed his behaviors from what they knew and from his writings. They concluded he was a borderline psychotic with severe sexual difficulties. And I'm not disagreeing with it necessarily. It's just kind of strange that you can get to that conclusion without actually examining the guy. But they did. So taking that information... The Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA, back then it was called the OSS, they came up with a plan to end World War II. They were going to drop tons of pornographic pictures on Hitler's headquarters. They figured that would push him over the line into a full-blown psychosis. So basically what they conceived of, based on this diagnosis, was a porn bomb. Let's fill a bomb with pornographic literature and pictures and drop it on Hitler. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that the Army Air Corps decided against doing that. I'm not sure what the chain of command was that resulted in that decision, but the OSS never got a chance to drop its porn bomb on Hitler. Don't you think that would make a great Hollywood movie? You have a bunch of guys in a room. Oh, well, Hitler has sexual difficulties. Let's send him pornographic literature. That should solve things. I'm trying to see the casting right now. I've got another word origin for you. This comes from the rich people who would travel between England and India on steamship. They'd book passage. And the affluent passengers wanted to avoid being on the sunny side of the ship, so they'd book round-trip passage with special provisions that allowed them to change cabins on the return trip. So on the way out from England to India, they'd want to be on the port side, the left side of the ship. And on the return trip, they wanted to be on the right side of the ship, the starboard side. So they'd book their tickets, and the tickets would be stamped P-O-S-H. Port outward, starboard home. P-O-S-H, posh. Posh soon evolved to denote anything that the affluent and rich folks indulged in as a luxury. But it started on a steamship from England to India. The last one I have for you involves one of the things that I collect. I'm a playing card collector. I love playing cards. I've talked about this before. I love the backs you get on different playing cards. Years ago, my dad would come back from business trips and he'd have playing cards from the airlines. Back in the days before you had personal devices in the chair behind you, you could put on any TV show you wanted, or you could download a movie to your tablet or your phone or whatever. 
Back in those days, you had to entertain yourself, and one of the things that they had was playing cards. The little tray table was big enough for you to lay out a game of solitaire, or play gin rummy with your seatmate, if you were particularly sociable. And each airline had its own back of the card. Delta had their cards, American Airline had their cards, and my dad would bring me a deck of cards as a souvenir from a trip. But I discovered, over the years, there are lots of different backs. My aunt played cards. She had puppies and kittens and butterflies. The casinos all have different playing cards. You could get Star Trek cards. You could get Disney cards. You could get any kind of playing card. So I was always fascinated with the backs of the cards. But I was always interested in the fronts of the cards, too. Specifically, the suits. I mean, we all know the suits of the cards. Spades, hearts, clubs, diamonds. But I never really knew where they came from. And I'm not sure that anybody really knows... But there is one theory out there that I really like. The four suits in the deck of cards represent the social class system of 14th century Italy. Here's how the theory goes. The early decks of playing cards from Italy had four different suits representing four different social classes. The aristocracy was represented by swords. The merchant class was represented by coins. The clergy was represented by cups. The cups for sacramental vessels, of course. That's how you got the blood of Christ in church, with the cup. And the peasant class was represented by staves, or cudgels, or clubs, if you will. So the early suits of the cards, swords, coins, cups, and cudgels. Over the next five or six hundred years, those original suits developed to what we have today. So the spades, aristocracy, clubs for the peasants, and the diamonds and the hearts for the merchants and the clergy. And if you're a bridge player or a poker player, the ranks of the suits also mirror that. Spades are the highest ranking suit, and clubs are always the lowest aristocracy at the top, peasants at the bottom, and the merchants and clergy in the middle. The only card that doesn't fall neatly into these categories? The Joker. The Joker can assume any role the Joker wants, depending, of course, on the game you're playing. And, as it turns out, that actually mimics real life, too. I'm living proof. Now, I don't know if any of that information is going to help you in your next game of Trivial Pursuit, but at least you've got it. And if nothing else, it'll give you something to think about tonight. I shouldn't be the only one thinking about this stuff. And once I'm gone, somebody's got to pick up the ball and run with it. So, now it's yours. Do with it as you wish. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate your support, and I can't thank you enough for all the time you spend here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.